This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Siemens, ingenuity for life. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Representative Seth Moulton joined the Washington Post to discuss his $240 billion proposal for a nationwide high-speed rail network. Moulton says his plan would create 2.6 million jobs over five years and would create competition for road and air travel. Let's listen. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer with the Washington Post. Today, we're going to be talking about America's growing infrastructure needs, both from a national perspective and with two prominent American mayors. But let's start with the big picture. I'm very pleased to welcome today, Congressman Seth Moulton of Massachusetts. Welcome, Congressman. It's great to be here, Francis. Thanks for having me. We're delighted to have you. So you've made infrastructure a major concern of yours during your time in Congress. What do you believe America's biggest infrastructure needs are right now? Well, we talk a lot about the need to simply invest more money in infrastructure. And of course, this includes everything from fixing the potholes in our roads, our bridges that are literally falling down, to investing in high-speed broadband all across America, including rural America. But while everyone agrees we have an infrastructure deficit, I think what we don't talk about enough is how to truly invest in 21st century infrastructure. And a great example is with our transportation system. We're still pouring billions and billions of dollars into a 1950s era highway system without investing anything in high-speed rail. Uh, Every leading country in the world, aside from America, is investing massive amounts of money in high-speed rail because it's a faster, safer, more efficient way to travel. Uh, And yet here in America, we're just doubling down on highways. So investing in infrastructure means also making the right investments. And that's what I'd like to talk about this morning. Yeah, well, we're right at the moment in a crisis, the COVID crisis. It's hitting everybody's pocketbooks across the board. It's now a good time to be talking about spending, and I know we'll get to your rail project in a moment, but is now a good time to be spending millions and millions, billions even, of dollars on projects like this? Uh, Absolutely. It's actually the best time uh, because interest rates are so low and so many Americans are out of work. This is exactly the time that we need federal stimulus from an economic perspective. Um, And it's a great opportunity to rebuild our infrastructure because we know that we have this massive infrastructure deficit. So the question is, are we going to recreate the infrastructure that uh, we built in the 1950s, or are we going to build a next generation infrastructure system that includes high speed rail, high speed broadband, next generation technologies like 5G uh, to reach everywhere in America and truly improve the quality of life for Americans? Do we really want Americans to just be sitting in traffic going a maximum of 65 miles per hour, 75 miles per hour for the next 100 years? Or do we want to make sure that Americans can sit back and enjoy dinner and get to their destination at 250 or 300 miles per hour? I mean, that's the kind of choice that we have to make. And it's a choice that we make today that affects the next generation. We have a generational opportunity to invest in infrastructure we can't take that opportunity and invest in the last generation's infrastructure. So you've referenced the 1950s a couple of times. Let's step back a little bit. Are you hoping for the sort of federal investment in in big plans like the New Deal after the Great Depression or the post-war period where where there was really a a sort of massive rethinking about how America was going to rebuild and re-employ people? 
Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Um, we know that ma massive infrastructure investments are always led by the federal government. Uh, but to your point, it's a time to not just write the check, but really talk about what we're investing in. And, and here's the vision for the future. Imagine being able to get on a train in Washington every 15 minutes and get to Boston in two hours without a weather delay ever. Or the same trip from New York to Chicago, a train every 15 minutes, no security lines, no delays, you're on the train, you can do whatever you want with your time, whether it's sleep or work or talk on the phone uh, or have meetings. And there are never any weather delays. It's faster, it's more efficient, it's more comfortable. And other parts of the country too, I mean, Chicago and Atlanta seem very far apart. It seems like, of course, you have to fly. But travelers in China regularly make those distances of those journeys from Chicago to Atlanta uh, every single day on high-speed rail. And Indianapolis, Louisville, Nashville, Chattanooga, those would all be intermediate stops that would be served by the Chicago to Atlanta service. You'd have more frequent service, far nicer accommodations, no weather disruptions, and much more time to enjoy aboard rather than in you know, terminal lines or security checks. So this is about improving the quality of life for Americans. It's about making our economy more efficient, improving the opportunities for business travelers and leisure travelers alike. It's a better quality of life than what we have today when we only have the choice of flying or driving. So you have said that this $240 billion plan could result in the creation of, I think, 2.6 million jobs over five years. What do you base that on? Well, there have been a number of studies done on, on high-speed rail and its economic benefits. And it's no mistake that all these other countries are investing in it. You know, there's, there's not some vast rail conspiracy that's infecting every other country in the world, but somehow America is above that and we just invest in airports and highways. No, this makes economic sense. It's a better use of our transportation dollar. Part of that is the direct jobs that it creates, and there are numerous studies that, that cite these specific numbers. But it's also about the kind of economic opportunity that it enables. Um, just think about, we have, I'm sure, a lot of people from the Washington, D.C. area right now. And every single summer when you want to get on a plane uh, to either New York or Boston, you face weather delays. And that disrupts your life. It disrupts your business meetings. It makes your time less efficient. Imagine if there were a train every 15 minutes. That's how much demand there would be if there was fast service. So you'd have a train every 15 minutes with far more space aboard to um, to spread out than you would ever get on, a, uh, on an airline. And you can get to Boston reliably, no matter what the weather, no matter what the season, um, and you know it will be safe. You know, uh, Japan has had a high-speed rail system for 56 years. They have had zero passenger fatalities. Just think about that. 56 years, zero fa passenger fatalities. Um, we had 393 civil aviation deaths and 36,560 automobile deaths just in 2018. That's in one I'd like, year. I'd like to ask you a little bit about America's appetite for public transportation at this point. It seems at the moment, and we're reading about it, that Americans are buying used cars, getting off the rails, um, out of the air, and choosing their own forms of transportation. Do you see that trend reversing itself quickly, or are you just talking big picture and thinking this is the way we have to go eventually? 
Well, in many ways, it's both. Uh, yes, I mean, we're not going to be in a pandemic forever, and I understand why people um, are nervous about getting on trains or planes, although there have been a number of studies that have come out recently that have uh, said that uh, because of the air filtration systems, especially on modern high-speed trains, uh, those are not a cause of uh, spreading the pandemic. And uh, we've seen this uh, as the, this has been studied in other parts of the world. Um, but yes, I mean, life is going to get back to normal. Um, economic activity is going to return demand to normal. Our highways are going to get congested again. Our airports are going to get congested again. And we have to figure out, are we going to just continue to expand highways, taking more and more lane and actually worsening congestion? Or are we just going to double down on our airport system uh, with a travel uh, mode that is that is truly unreliable, um, hugely susceptible to weather and not very efficient? Or are we going to say, hey, we can be smarter, we can uh, we can invest for the future here and we can make those investments now uh, that will pay off down the road? So you have said that America has given short shift to rail and you've made that point again today. Um, by comparison with the investments and the subsidies for, for road and air, how do you see going about changing those priorities? They're deeply embedded in the way Americans think about their travel. Well, they are. Um, I hope that we're starting to learn a lesson. Uh, just to give you one more statistic, highway capital projects in urban areas, so just in urban areas, cost $500 billion, half a trillion dollars to states between 1993 and 2017, and yet they caused congestion to grow by more than 144%. So between 93 and 2017, we spent $500 billion on highways and congestion has grown by 144%, faster than population growth. So this isn't working. This isn't working. We have to change how we approach this. Now, if you really wanna do a fair comparison of these modes, and you say, okay, what's the safest? What's the best for the environment? What's the fastest? What's the most efficient? What's the most comfortable? All of those answers are high-speed rail. So really from a policy perspective, what we should be doing is shifting massive amounts of money from highways and airports into high-speed rail. That should be our preferred investment. What I'm arguing for in my proposal is actually much more modest. It's just to level the playing field so that you can actually have a fair free market competition among different modes. You know, China is doing the first thing. They're actually saying, we're not gonna put a lot of money in highways. We're gonna shift that money into high-speed rail. And they just announced that they're doubling down on that plan. I mean, they're looking at the numbers and they clearly see high-speed rail as a better investment. But it's not like if you're a traveler in China, you can't fly or you can't drive. Those options are available as well. It's just that the market, the free market, is saying, no, people prefer traveling by train. We don't even have those options here in a much freer country uh, than, than China. We're a country that prides ourselves on our free market and the freedom of choice. And yet today in America, high-speed rail isn't an option. Congressman, I'd like to ask you about your recent political experience. You ran uh, briefly for the 2020 Democratic nomination. Um, what is your impression now? You have a very impressive military record yourself, an impressive um, educational background. Do you think there's room for a person like you now as the leader of the evolving Democratic Party? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, we are working hard to be the majority party in America. Uh, we already have a majority in the House, but we're fighting hard to get one in the Senate. And of course, we're fighting to take back the White House. Now, being a majority party means that you have to have the majority of views. And uh, there are a lot of criticisms of different parts of our party, 
But the fact of the matter is that we want everybody under our tent. You know, we want to include as many Americans as possible because that's the definition of being in a majority and being able to lead. So I'm very proud to be a Democrat. I've always been proud to be a Democrat. Um, but we have to do we have to do still more work to make sure that we earn the trust of the American people. Uh, right now, we hold one house in Congress, not two. We do not hold the White House. Uh, we have to work to earn those votes. And I'm proud to be a part of that future. What did you learn during your, during your brief uh, presidential bid? Oh my gosh, uh, so much. Uh, <laughs> uh, certainly the importance of timing in terms of uh, when to get in, getting right. in a week before Biden didn't serve me well. Um, but I am so glad that I ran because I thought it was important to bring the perspective of a combat veteran to the campaign trail. We Americans forget we're in the middle of the longest war in American history. And I was the only combat veteran um, on the campaign trail, despite all the different people who were, who were running. And I was glad to contribute that perspective. But what I learned, it was, it was hearing from Americans. It was learning about all the different experiences of so many Americans across this country, so many of whom are struggling to get ahead. And all of those struggles that so many American families are going through today have just been exacerbated by uh, this pandemic. You know, the rich and wealthy are having more time off and they're enjoying time uh, at their homes and businesses like Amazon uh, are flying off the charts. Meanwhile, most small and medium businesses, all those restaurants and mom and pop shops across America are really suffering. And I saw a recent report that said that 78% of restaurants are likely to go out of business if Congress doesn't do more to help in the coming months. So what we have to realize right now, and this goes back to your previous question too about, about the Democratic Party, is we got to make sure that we're not forgetting anyone in America. The Democrats have always been that party that looks out for the little guy. We've got to continue to do that because right now the little guy in America needs a lot of help. So another uh, candidate, Amy Klobuchar, made a, a big appeal for infrastructure on the top of her platform. But what do you know about Joe Biden's infrastructure plans? Well, actually, uh, Joe Biden has talked a lot about high speed rail. He and I have talked personally about high speed rail. So he is Amtrak very much Joe. focused on. <laughs> Well, Amtrak Joe, yes, although I think, you know, it's important to note that uh, the future of high-speed rail in America is not 1950s-style Amtrak trains. I mean, we're really talking about totally new uh, technology. And if you look at uh, the operations across the world, I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're definitely a step up from Amtrak. Uh, but Joe Biden knows this. He understands this. Uh, we have a president right now who for four years has promised infrastructure investment and has gotten nothing accomplished. Donald Trump only knows how to get around on a private plane. You know, going to a president who's used to getting on the train, uh, knowing all the conductors, and seeing his kids at the end of every day, that's someone who we want to guide our future of infrastructure investment. And that's one of the many benefits of high-speed rail. You can work in a city downtown and then get to your hometown community that might be a three or four hour drive away in 30 minutes and have dinner with your family. So we seem to be seeing a tightening race between President Trump and former and Vice President Biden. What do you see as the defining issues in the coming weeks? Well, certainly it's the response to this pandemic. And every epidemiologist that I've talked to has said that this is going to get worse. And we need to have a, a president who believes in science, who follows the advice of uh, his intelligence briefings, uh, rather than trying to cover them up and lie to the American people like we now know Trump has been doing for a long time. Uh, we need a steady hand as we face increasing crises because of this pandemic. Um, I just got a briefing yesterday on the national security implications of COVID-19. 
uh, that's a real issue. And of course, the economic concerns of so many Americans are first and foremost in people's minds. If you just look at what Congress is doing, I'm, I'm back in Washington this week. Uh, the House has passed relief legislation weeks ago, months ago now. Uh, we're fighting to get more help to Americans. The Senate, which is led by Republicans right now, is saying they don't want to spend much. They don't want to do much. They don't want to help. And that's just not supported by the facts. I mean, this is a greater economic crisis that we're facing than the Great Depression. And nobody looks back on the Great Depression and says, you know, the, the problem was that the federal government did too much or the federal government acted too quickly. No, far from the case. We need to go big, we need to go hard, and we need to act quickly to help American families. And yes, we need to make sure we pay it off down the road. But right now, we need to invest in this economy. We need to invest in small businesses. We need to invest in American families to get through this pandemic. Congressman, I want to ask you about another controversy that erupted recently. You're a former Marine. You served with distinction in Iraq. Um, the Atlantic recently published an article alleging that uh, President Trump mocked uh, people who fought in those wars. And those are claims, I must say, that the president vigorously denies. What is your belief about those claims? How do you respond? They're 100% true because this is who President Trump is. And, you know, although the sources are anonymous, as often they are, I mean, all the Watergate sources were anonymous, right? Um, these are trustworthy people. These are sources that have been verified. And I take their word of multiple people any day of the week over a president who lies in every single press conference. But you don't even need to have the, the verification. Just know that this is who this man is. This is what he's always, this is how he's always acted. This is why he's disparaged John McCain and, and Gold Star families. This is why he, he doesn't bother to go and visit our troops or, or pay homage to those who have died. And everybody has to understand that this isn't just about our troops. This is about anybody who believes in service, in public oh. service. It, in doing something for others. Congressman Seth Moulton, thank you very much for joining me today. I'm afraid that's all we have time for. Francis, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.